0: Hey there, fellow foodies. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Um, Today on the show, we're going to turn back to one of my favorite uh, topics, and that is fermentation. And my other favorite topic or favorite beverage is coffee. So we're bringing the two together. And I have a great guest for this topic today. Um, Our guest is Dr. Eric Peterson. He's an interdisciplinary researcher who's worried about food, um, as I think many of us are. A perfect storm is on the horizon where climate change, political instability, and globalization all threaten access to our food for everyone. Um, As a professor at INRS in Quebec, Canada, Eric spends most of his time obsessing about the circular economy and trying to turn food waste into alternative proteins through fermentation. Um, somewhere along the way, he became an expert in coffee and cocoa, um, that's also known as chocolate. <laughs> Originally Canadian, Eric has spent the last decade doing research in the tropics. Um, he was a professor in Colombia for five years, which brought him to close contact with rural farming communities um, and also enabled some of his work on sustainability for tropical agriculture. It's so great to have you on the show today, Eric. Thanks so much for coming.
1: Oh, happy to be here. It's a Pleasure as always. Yeah.
0: Well, I came across your recent paper that was titled Aromatic Yeast Interactions and Implications in Coffee Fermentation Aroma Profiles, which is very exciting um, to me as a topic. So why don't we start there a little bit about, you know, what you're studying in this domain of coffee and fermentation?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I mean, the first thing that uh, when I start talking to people about this is that they don't many people don't really realize that there's a fermentation step involved in coffee production. There's also mm-hmm. one in cocoa production as well. And uh, this, this plays a really important role on the, on the sensory uh, attributes of the coffee that we drink, how it tastes, how it smells. Um, so uh, th- and so, th- what we call this post-harvest processing. And uh, there's a lot of research now that's being put into understanding uh, how this happens uh, out there in the field.
0: Great. So, well, coffee and chocolate are both fermented products. How does, how does this whole process work? How does fermentation work on the coffee itself? I mean, are these, are we adding microbes to the coffee or is this coming naturally from the environment and how do you control for variability if it is natural? How does all that come together?
1: So that's, um, that's a great question. Uh, there's a lot of uh, natural microflora out there that normally forms the, the uh, basis for this fermentation. You think about how uh, you know, uh, these fermentations were originally invented, they just made a heap of beans somewhere and then afterwards, oh, hey, it tastes really good. I don't know why something happened in there. So it's a spontaneous process that takes place. Uh, but So there's two different ways of processing coffee. There's dry coffee, uh, dry processing or natural, where they spread them out to dry and there's no fermentation or there's a wet process where they wash the beans and they remove the pulp and then allow them to sit uh, for about 48 hours uh, and the microbes uh, um, will clean the beans because they're left in the slimy mucilage. And so the, Mm -hmm. the microbes will actually consume that mucilage which then makes it easier to dry the beans. But at the same time, these microorganisms are changing the flavors of the beans as they go along through various different ways.
0: Cool. So, how do you, as a scientist, how do you detect these changes in flavor? Are there chemical analytical tools that you can use to, to track this?
1: Oh, absolutely. But I'm just a, uh, you know, a, a, a simple microbiologist. I have <laughs> I have friends who are very good at analytic chemistry and they have very expensive machines which can peer into the coffee beans that I fermented and tell me, you know, what all the different chemicals are that are present in the coffee bean. And uh, let me tell you, it is complex. There are multiple different factors at play for all that the things that have to happen to to create that uh, impact when you have your first cup of coffee in the morning.
0: Nice. So I think, you know, so many of us enjoy fermented foods. I mean, in fermentation can be driven by bacteria or yeast Mm -hmm. um, and other fungi in the case of coffee, is there a certain, um, maybe a certain group of yeast that's more predominant, or is there a certain genus of yeast? As a microbiologist, what have you seen in the diversity of, of fermenting microbes?
1: Sure. So uh, there are, in the last couple of years, there have been a lot of studies that are coming out now on the microbiology of these fermentations. Uh, but generally, um, when we peer into these communities, uh, there are two main groups of organisms that are present, uh, lactic acid bacteria and yeasts. So, uh, and they kind of work together in this mixed microbial community. Uh, The the lactic acid bacteria, which you may know from other types of fermentation, like Mm -hmm. sauerkraut kimchi they acidify so they bring the ph down so that's a really good way to tell to watch for your fermentations is the the ph change this can also sometimes generate some heat so you can see that happening as well Uh, but they're predominantly there to lower the the ph and preserve this the food before it can be spoiled by undesirable organisms that are like molds and other unpleasant things but on the other side, the yeasts—they're uh, also in there, and yeasts are uh, remarkable at producing uh, aromatic compounds as well. They do this mostly as a I'm form of sure. of microbial um, microbial uh, defense against uh, other other types of uh, organisms. But to us, they end up tasting uh, a wonderful, you know. And it, it's funny—it's just like. How uh, chili peppers are designed to not be eaten, but we want to eat them anyway. So this is, yeah. a, this is a defense structure that that we now use to impart all these wonderful different aromas into the into the fermentation.
0: And the in the food world, there's a lot of discussion, especially for 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 grapevines or for coffee around this concept of terroir yeah. and mm-hmm. how the land upon which organisms are grown um, can really influence the final flavor and and outcomes of those food products. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, you know, how, how big of a role do the native yeast play in, in forming terroir? I mean, do you think that they're kind of a critical part there or, or, or not?
1: So, um, yeah, there's a lot of diversity in yeasts uh, and multiple different players are all coming together. Uh, and now these players do show up across the tropics. You know, like the same organisms will likely show up in Indonesia as they do in in Colombia or Africa in that tropical equatorial band where most of the coffee coffee is Mm -hmm. grown. Now, what really draws them out are the handling practices and how Uh you ferment it afterwards, because there's and now, you know, there's all these uh, artisanal fermentations coming out with different styles like anaerobic fermentations or honey fermentations where they've done things to manipulate the fermentation in such a way that it, it encourages these organisms to thrive that are producing all these special uh, aromatica compounds.
0: Interesting. Um, so you've, you've spent a lot of time in the tropics. I'm wondering if you've ever tried kopi luwak in, yeah. in Indonesia. I, I, I traveled to Sumatra, I don't know, many years ago. And I was, yeah, I had a chance to taste this. And for the listeners who aren't familiar with Kopi Luwak, maybe can you explain how it's
1: it's produced? (laughs) So This this coffee is famous because it's eaten by the civet, which is like a cat in Indonesia. And so afterwards, after it's passed through its digestion, they collect those beans and make that out of, uh, make that into a very uh, high-priced coffee. Um, that what, what the argument being that as it passes through the digestive tract of the animal, it gets fermented and it becomes even more rich. There's also another one called a uh, black ivory coffee, mm. which is the same pr- principle, but fed to elephants. So, yeah. Oh. So, you can, yeah, so that, that's another one. Um, I have tried Kopi Luwak. I was just in Bali um, uh, a few months ago. Uh, my wife's from Singapore. I've lived in Singapore for years, so I love that part of the world. Uh, And, and yeah, the coffee luwak is, uh, it's very um, delicious. It's rich. I mean, I wouldn't be able to, to like pull it out of a, like a blind taste test of different types of coffee, but it's, um, uh, I I have tried it. You have to try it if you're, uh, (laughs) if you're, uh, if you're bold and curious and you like coffee.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is interesting. It's kind of like, yeah, you're getting it from the end part of this digestive process, but in a way, I guess it's, you're really using the microbiota and the acidity of the animal's, you know, digestive tract, the stomach to strip off those, that mucilage that you mentioned earlier in the episode. Mm -hmm, Yeah. mm
1: -hmm, Around the mm -hmm. coffee.
0: It also kind of uh, uh,
1: triggers uh, enzymes present already in the bean because the beans are living things as well. And they start Mm -hmm. to activate themselves and degrade themselves. And this also plays into the chemistry because those degradation products, uh, Uh, from that are stored there for the little embryo to grow they can also uh uh, when roasted they make all some really interesting nutty and uh, toasted, toasted flavors in there as well
0: nice so so far we've been talking about mature coffee so you have these beautiful bright red cherries of the coffee beans that are that are harvested but i'm also aware they're of a of a process with green or unripe coffee processing what can you tell us about that and how does fermentation play a role there
1: Sure. Um, so uh, green coffee beans are the commodity that gets sold all around the world. Um, so what happens is you pick the cherries and they go through the whole uh, uh, post-harvest process, whatever you want. They get dried, they put in a bag and they get sold. And those, that commodity there is the green coffee bean.
0: Oh, so they're ripe. They're not unripe. So I yeah, misunderstood. Being, okay.
1: But they're, okay. What they are, they're unroasted. They haven't been roasted.
0: Unroasted. That's what they I mean by ripe. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. And so then those get sent all over the world. And so, uh, um, you know, when you are drinking coffee, it was, it was shipped as green beans and then arrives to where, wherever the location is. And then some roaster there, uh, uh, will, will convert it into, cause they don't, they don't keep so well once they're roasted, you know, that they're easy mm. to ship when green. Um, so you can, you can get your hands on these coffee beans anyone can anywhere you don't have to be a farmer in 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 one of these uh, regions that produces coffee uh, and you can you could potentially directly do a second fermentation on these commodities to modulate the, fer, the the fermentation process even further some people are really interested in this because it's a way to up upcycle low grade coffee beans into good coffee beans because there's a whole spectrum of different uh, qualities of coffee from commodity to specialty beans and there's a cupping score and the higher the cupping score, the higher the value. So if there's a way to improve this, uh, then there's a way to increase the, the value capture for these for these and, and increase the profit margins for coffee distributors.
0: So I have no idea what a cupping score is. (laughs) Can you tell me, like, what does that mean? When is that, like, like an interpretation of the quality or the flavor?
1: Well, there are some people out there that are really highly trained in sensory attributes of coffee. You can there's awards and competitions, and these people Mm -hmm. get paid a lot to tell people what coffee smells like. They're kind of like uh, sommeliers for coffee, coffee. Uh, and, okay. yeah and so what you would do is with, with these these coffee testers is you would um it's not quite the same as making a cup of coffee but something akin to like a hand pour where you make a loose a loosely ground coffee and then you do things like you smell it and you taste it but like wine tasting this isn't for drinking this is this is just to kind of get the the sensory attributes and then they they have a score for it and and the whole economy around coffee revolves around these cupping scores. And the higher your cupping score, the more money you get for your beans. And that's why artisanal farmers are trying harder to make higher quality beans. There's a drive there to to provide mm-hmm. the uh, global north with their demand for, uh, you know, designer beans.
0: Designer beans. So in your in your research laboratory, I know that you. Experiment with coffee and with yeast. Can you explain to us, like, what is it like? What What is an, a standard experiment like when you're trying to evaluate how different yeasts affect the outcomes of these coffee
1: right, fermentation right. process? So, um, like I said, it's complex because there's a lot of different species in there. It's a it's a mixed microbial community with with yeasts and bacteria. And and how do you deconstruct all of that? And, yeah. and are like, so you could take out one yeast and, and study how that one yeast grows, but then if you put it in combination with another lactic acid bacteria or another yeast, how are they going to interact and and how is that going to change the, the performance? Because this is a lot closer to reality of a, of a fermentation rather than this reductionist approach of just zeroing in on the like a special, this is the special yeast that does everything. There's a, it's, it's complex. And so uh, you have to come up with microbiological approaches where you can t- uh, test many different combinations. You know, so um, let me let me ask you a question. You uh, have you can you name a yeast?
0: I I know only about pathogenic yeast like Candida oh, okay. albicans or oris or paralysis. Okay. Yeah, glabrota.
1: Candida. Yeah. That's, that's a good mm-hmm. one. Well, not not for pathogens, I guess. Not. What make you sick.
0: A, I don't know what what who to make a for coffee
1: for baking. <laughs> Baking or brewing. You
0: know? Oh, like uh, Saccharomyces.
1: Saccharomyces cerevisiae, okay. the most, like the most, probably the most important yeast uh, in in history for making bread, making beer. It's also really present in uh, coffee strains. In no coffee way. Strains, yeah, it's, wow. a, it's, it's a dominant one. But there's all these other little yeasts that also. Uh, the nice thing about Saccharomyces cerevisiae is it's a very messy eater. So it grows really fast, but it makes it makes a lot of waste when it's when it's producing and other yeasts can utilize that waste and then they can grow and then they can add their own special flavors in there as well. So we're we're looking at how when you cultivate um, specific types of yeast with Saccharomyces, some produce uh, one type of aroma profile and another group will produce a different type of aroma profile and we're able to peel that apart and up to now, people haven't been really looking at that in fermentations. They've been looking at pure cultures. But now we're trying to find ways of understanding how uh, these mixed cultures can can influence the the fine-tuning of the aroma profile of coffee fermentation even further.
0: Interesting. So I've I've heard of people in the natural products world working with mixed cultures through, I believe it's called a Boyton apparatus, where you kind of have two Two flasks with a semi-permeable membrane to allow for transfer of small molecules between the two cultures. Do you use something like that, or or is it or is like how do you how do you look at exchange, or you just have many many test tubes with many many different combinations of these years? Pretty much,
1: pretty much a lot of test tubes. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we just throw them all in together and see if they play along nice or not. Uh, and okay. so. Um, but what we'll do is there are multiple different strains of a specific organism. Like, like we're talking about Saccharomyces, there are hundreds of different types of Mm -hmm. Saccharomyces cerevisiae there. So if you, so if you collect a group of these aroma yeasts and you cultivate each one of them individually with Saccharomyces, and you can see that they all kind of cluster in one area when you look at the, 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 the PCA analysis a positive composite analysis. So you can look at these clustering mechanisms. You can say like, wow, when I do all these cultures with Hanseniospora, They're all over here, and they're look. They're making mint and cherry notes. And then if I do it Mm. with Picchia Sevi, oh, now we're getting banana notes and some some floral notes as well, right? So you can, it's it's a numbers game, and then you kind of look at it statistically to kind of see where the where the the clusters lie in 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 the behaviors. So
0: interesting. So is, is your work in some ways kind of translationally motivated? I know you're really a big supporter of kind of upcycling and looking for ways to reduce waste in the food system. Is that is that your kind of where you hope this research will lead, that this will help us to produce well, better beans?
1: You got to pay the bill somehow. And <laughs> True. Coffee, coffee and cocoa are luxury goods. You know, there's a lot of money to be made uh, in these in these industries uh, mm-hmm. and. know, I was working in Singapore for the Singapore government doing multinational uh, research uh, for for um, multinational corporations that are interested in in these types of fermentation approaches. So, yes, it's very translational. It's very focused on industrial uh, applications with big, big uh, food companies out there that uh, um, are very interested in applying these approaches so that they can bring consumers um, products that are. Um, or, uh, you know what what they're looking for I, I you know I have research as well that focuses on circular economy and waste valorization and working with farmers in in rural communities because I want to I want to contribute to those things but yeah the other side of, of research now is this the commercialized uh, element, mm-hmm. element of it. and uh, um, that's that's why the kind of research I was doing uh, in the past
0: That's great. No, I I, just to be clear, I don't have any problems with translational research. I think that this is actually more of what we need, um, because I think, you know, we have to find real solutions that are economically viable to really help move, um, move economies into a more sustainable kind of mindset and sustainable practice. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's
1: important. Yeah. Um, you can so, use these approaches to, to produce like microbial protein or all sorts of great products that are kind of done the same way that you do a coffee fermentation, but you do them uh, with different goals in mind, which for me is like generally typically trying to generate food sources from things that normally we wouldn't want to eat.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about chocolate because I know you've also worked with the Theobroma cacao. Yeah. It's the chocolate tree. You- um
1: shirt but i got little cocoa pods all over my shirt oh
0: you have cocoa pods in your shirt that's amazing (laughs) i like it dressed to impress for the interview (laughs) um so where we we, we've we've talked about how how fermentation is important to releasing these incredible flavor profiles and coffees but is the same principle does that also hold for cacao like is that also important to the quality of chocolates that we then receive down the road
1: Absolutely, one hundred percent. If anything, it's more important than with uh, coffee, and it's more complex because uh, there's there's more things in play. uh, Specifically, when I was talking about heat generation and enzymes in the beans. This happens a lot more in cocoa where the, and that's where you get that rich cocoa fles, uh, taste. And so, you know, there's, there's multiple different places where you can get coffee around the world. 85% of it comes from West Africa, from Ghana, which is where I got this shirt, visiting Ghana mm-hmm. for uh, Ghanaian co- uh, cocoa farmers. The lowest quality coffee comes from Indonesia because they don't do any type of fermentation whatsoever. Whereas in Ghana, they do a, a pile fermentation and that makes mm-hmm. it a, that heat makes it um, uh, a much higher quality but the top the tippy top quality comes from south america ecuador colombia these countries this is the uh, the ancestral heart of cocoa and those are where you get like the really fancy types of chocolate bars
0: so for the for the cocoa piles i know like i've i've eaten just raw cocoa off off the tree in in peru now of course not the actual dark you know seed <laughs> because that's incredibly bitter but the white pith that's doesn't have that great of a taste but it's it's kind of interesting to know well, like, on. like yeah um so when you talk about fermentation in this context are they breaking open the cocoa pods or are you just piling up the pods intact and in these large piles in ghana like okay. how, how are what do these piles actually look like i'm okay. just trying to paint a picture
1: it is done differently in different countries but in ghana what everybody does is everyone from the neighborhood comes over to one person's farm and they collect all the pods. They crack them open with a stick, reach mm-hmm. in, pull out all the pods, and then make it make it make the beans into a big pile of those just so beans. beans, mm-hmm. right? beans yeah. And then what? And then that sits. They sit that for about seven days uh, with mixing occasionally. Uh, at the start, all of that pulp, which I find very nice, it's sweet and floral. And when you make a huge pile of it, it kind of creates a juicing effect, which drips off into and they collect it in a bucket next to the. Oh. Pile. And then you can nice. drink that. It's it's wonderful. And nice. they, even, they even ferment that into a wine and a gin, which is also wonderful, I must say. <laughs>
0: That's not, okay. I uh, have to add that to my must must drink uh, bucket list. Is,
1: yes. There's a funny story here. So I was drinking, I was on this field visit and I was drinking this juice that had just come out of this cocoa pot bucket. And uh, the microbiologist on another microbiologist was like, hey, I just did the counts on that. You should know that the Enterobacter count is very high. My <laughs> Which is the bacteria that typically make you sick if you're traveling, if you know what I mean? I'm like, you could have
0: told oh, me that. Oh, traveler's before diarrhea. I yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Before I drank it, but fortunately, uh, <laughs> I was okay. But there was a moment where me and some other people drinking went like, "Oh no!" But this like, is wow. what
0: happens when you travel with microbiologists. Yeah. I like that.
1: <laughs> the gin kind of balanced it out in the in the end. Yeah,
0: you have to wait for more of that alcohol production to happen uh, later in the fermentation process. <laughs> That's great. So, so this, this kind of this white pith kind of forms this juice that can then be fermented to make added value products. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. When, what's the, what's the key that kind of tells people, okay, the pile's ready now to dry, or is that the next step in the process after it's fermented for seven days?
1: Yeah. I mean, so they, they've got a Pretty good uh, rhythm down to what they do. And it happens pretty consistently uh, that, you know, it takes about seven days. You can watch the temperature like kind of peak. You can look, uh, it kind of guts up to even 50, 60 degrees. So it gets quite warm mm-hmm. uh, from all the microbial activity growing on that pulp. And then as it starts to taper off, they know it's done. Uh, that, that part's pretty pretty consistent actually it always kind of happened the same way what's less consistent is the drying afterwards because now you've got to spread these things out on a big mat in the sun and hope it doesn't rain and and, and oh. it so, so this can yeah. really influence the quality of the cocoa as well because uh you know you don't want it to take too long to dry or it could it could get moldy and so mm-hmm. so the the drying is one of the more more sensitive things. The other thing people don't think about is that like wine, the cocoa beans need to age. So if you let them sit in um, you know, in a warehouse, as they often do when they're getting shipped, that gives the beans time to age and become a, like, a little bit more oxidized. And that really adds to the rich cocoa flavor notes that you get in cocoa beans as well.
0: Oh, interesting. Interesting. So I know you're not a chemist, but I'm wondering, within both of these plants, you have this Crazy high mixture of xanthine alkaloids. Your your stimulant alkaloids, caffeine mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and cocoa. You have theobromine. Yep. Um, so, does the fermentation? Do you know? Does the fermentation also affect the availability of those alkaloids, of those bitter stimulants? Or
1: right. so we've looked into this, uh, mm-hmm. and you know, being part of a biologist is understanding the chemistry of the systems that. you There you use. go. Uh-huh. I'm just not very good at using the really complicated machines. Okay. Like how much chloroclinolactone is in there, but there there are these, so in coffee, there are things like uh, chlorogenic acids, chloroclinolactone that are very responsible for the bittering tastes that you get uh, when you drink, when you drink a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And so when you ferment these green beans, you can actually slightly lower those, uh, those amounts. They do get metabolized by the by the uh, microorganisms, and so what this does is it makes the coffee a little bit more mild, which is great if, say, you have uh, gastrointestinal problems. You know, then uh, this is this coffee. If if co- if you find the coffee upsets your stomach, there's less chance that this is going to happen with this this fermented green bean instead.
0: Nice, nice, nice. So, out of all the places that you've traveled across the tropics. Um, What's your favorite source for both coffee and for for your cocoa?
1: Mm, Okay. Um, Well, don't go to Colombia for coffee. That's my recommendation. Everyone thinks you (laughs) can go to Colombia and get amazing coffee, but they export it all. So, you know, I drank a lot of instant coffee for the five years that i was living in in, <laughs> in colombia you can go to the farms and buy some nice beans but don't expect you know a nice latte or or, or things like that so but if you do go to colombia i highly recommend going to the grocery store and buying as much chocolate as you can because it is very very good it's the locally produced well within colombia and it's the highest quality uh, cocoa beans you can get in the world so uh, wow for cheap you know so that's mm-hmm. uh yeah fill your suitcase with colombian chocolate and bring it home
0: (laughs) and you buy the colombian coffee here in the u.s
1: (laughs) or canada well let me ask you a question what kind of coffee do you drink cassandra
0: oh man i'm so bad i just drink anything (laughs) I, I I I'm embarrassed to say like I have like the pre-ground folders right now but <laughs> my husband is a big coffee fan and he's like I have to do better than this uh, <laughs> so yeah. his birthday was this week and I got him like a home coffee grinder so he's going to start nice. you know yeah he's Italian so he's very particular uh, about his coffees and he's just been suffering along with me you know when I do the grocery <laughs> shopping so I think he's he's taking back control of the coffee so we'll see what comes uh, out next
1: you No, know, like uh yeah uh, the italians love their coffee but and they claim to yeah. own it but really it comes from other countries you know and i have some yeah. examples here i wanted to show you oh yeah things. i'd love to see the examples so I, I get my coffee from a roastery in montreal called zab uh and uh-huh. i have this i had this ordered in uh, but there's some good examples of some different coffees like for instance we've got two here uh one from brazil and one from ethiopia and nice. so um the brazil is uh, a dry uh, ferment, uh, not a fermentation, but a dry process. And so like a lot of time with these, they'll tell you, these are single origin coffees and they'll tell you where it came from, uh, what the farm was, uh, who produced it, the altitude that it was grown wow. at, variety of the bean uh, and the and the process. So in this case, it's a, it's a naturally deep pulped. So this is a natural process. They spread these out to dry. And then the roaster has put that the uh, aroma notes for this coffee are brownie nuts and cream Ooh. so uh, that's that's a that's a natural process now uh, a different example here is the uh, the wet process uh, again so this is it tells you all the same details of who did it and where and at what altitude but this was a wash or a fermented one and uh, unlike um, the, the the dry uh, form which was brownies this is a raspberry uh, mousse, sorry, it's in French. It's grapefruit <laughs> and and, flor- and floral notes. So you can see this is very fruity, whereas that whereas this v- variety is very like uh, chocolatey and
0: chocolatey, and nutty. Nice. Oh, nice!
1: Now, you can smell them, and you can smell the difference. Like, yeah, this one does smell fruity. and This one does smell um, nutty. Um, but I mean, I have to just draw the the caveat that it still tastes like coffee. Uh, people think that, like, it's going to taste like raspberries. I'm like, no, it still tastes, it's coffee with these subtle notes afterwards of, of yeah. raspberry. I had a friend, there was, uh, I learned, I was doing this coffee fermentation in Singapore and there was a coffee shop downstairs that would sell these single origins. And that's where I developed a lot of my palate. And I brought one of my friends there and they they ordered a coffee that had a gummy bear, a, a aroma notes of gummy bears. And they were expecting it to taste, like, and they'd try it, bah! It's coffee, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. That's what it is, you know. But somewhere in there, they get pretty creative with the 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 bouquet of these of these coffees. But, <laughs> but uh, from a broad perspective, you you really can uh, taste, it. and sometimes it'll just surprise you when you're like sipping a like my coffee. It's like getting a little bit cooler, and all of a sudden, I can taste notes of like cardamom or cinnamon. And I didn't nice. put in, I didn't put those, yeah. in, you know. So uh, you have to like kind of cultivate the palate to do it, but. And the other thing is, it's not hard to make these kinds of coffees. Anybody can do it. You just, you know, like I started with like a little little hand grinder, a little, uh-huh. Jap- little Japanese hand grinder that you can use for growing, um, for for grinding up your beans, and then just like a a, a you know a, a hand pour for filtering. Filters. You just grind the beans and you put them in there, and you and you let it.
0: Oh, nice! So That's it's very really, fancy. Yeah. Really
1: fancy, but low tech as well. Low tech. I mean, yeah. Yeah. The only thing that I've really invested in is uh, a, a good coffee grinder because that actually does make a difference in the quality of your coffee. And uh, frankly, I was getting tired of like hand grinding my coffee every morning. I was like, oh, I have to do this. It was limiting my coffee intake, which may may have been better in, in the long run. But <laughs> now I'm now I'm a high octane state, and I'm drinking coffee all the time. That's great. That's
0: great. So when you talk about a good coffee grind, like. How, how fine do you like your coffee? Because we've, we've talked about like basically, uh, well, this is where you're passing hot water through the coffee, um, but you also have other forms of coffee consumption, such as in espressos or yeah. Turkish coffee, where other plants like cardamom are added to it. Yeah. So what can you share about the quality of the flavor combined with these different preparation styles okay. because you're you're starting with coffee beans i guess prepared either fermented or not but there's yep. so many different ways it can go so many so
1: that. many so let's just put aside the flavoring elements because that's kind of like a little gauche to coffee uh, connoisseurs we don't, <laughs> okay. don't, don't add anything <laughs> into the coffee you know that'd be like adding your some vanilla good,
0: syrup you know okay. syrup
1: to your wine you know just to make it a little bit nicer like you know, oh i would never do yeah. that but, but um <laughs> so, so if you were i mean it, it really depends on What kind of coffee beverage you're producing uh, sets in motion several different things. Roasting, for example, Uh, if you want espresso, you want a dark roast. The most Mm -hmm. uh, the darkest roast is an Italian roast. And they roast it so much that the bean turns purple. It's almost like a little it looks like, uh, like it's been carbonized or it's a little piece of charcoal. You know, it's been it's been zapped into pure like a rich cocoa taste, right? Whereas if you want to taste the acidic and floral notes, you want to roast it less in something like a, a city roast or a light roast. And this mm. keeps it more acidic, but allows some more of those, those aromas to, to come through uh, as well. And then um, the, the for the preparation, you, like you fine grind is typically for espressos. Uh, a coarse grind is more for hand pours and you kind of have to dial it in yourself for where what you like and uh uh but 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 generally uh the the roast diameter is is specific if you're using a special machine, fine if you're using a hand pour, you want it on a medium and I think with the percolator, you know the old uh, italian style ones those which I've used those for years as well uh they uh they they also uh, require like a a certain grind
0: yeah. Yeah. So many different ways to take this one ingredient and transform it. That's what's so cool because it all starts as like this little plant and yeah. And And then it's always coffee, but the quality and the the flavor profile and the style can vary Mm -hmm. so greatly.
1: Something that we really love, but you also have to consider that like a lot of people around the world, their livelihood is dependent depending on these beans as well. Right. And we talk about things like, uh, you know, fair trade coffee beans and like making sure that farmers get a fair share for it. But at the end of the day, they're still not getting paid that much for all this coffee that we love. We love to drink. And so this is it's a it's a real catch 22 because you can't say like, well, I'm going to stop drinking coffee because farmers are being exploited because then the farmers are not going to have an income anymore. Right. But but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, you're looking at corporations that want to maximize their profit margins while paying the farm, not paying the farmers more that's a little bit, you know, questionable as well. So I think that it's it's really complex and it's a really high visibility target because um, coffee and cocoa, but, but uh, it's just something that I think we really need to be aware of, uh, you know, and uh, check our yeah. privilege a little bit when we're making yeah. our coffee that we got to understand and our chocolate, you know, how much work people put into this wonderful thing that we love to enjoy.
0: Yeah so I mean yeah the ethics of 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 the coffee and and chocolate industry is 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 there are many challenges I guess from your work in the tropics what would, what do you think some of the economic factors are so we know we have kind of large multinational companies that that you know sell many of these products but Is one of the issues also that we don't have on site roasting facilities is it sounds like a lot of the fermenting and stuff is happening in country, but then it's shipped out of country as a green bean unroasted. And that's where the value really comes in is after roasting. Am I understanding that right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. There's a huge value capture for suppliers and roasters, typically in the global north that actually, you know, capture most of the value from from this uh, compared to the commodity beans that get bought at the farm gate produced by the farmer who really did the, the hard work to, to mm-hmm. really uh, to, to get this to, to this state. Uh, I mean, so if you look at uh, cocoa production, you know, there's only three main uh, uh, country or companies that that buy beans from farmers and sell them around the world you know so there's there, it's really consolidated into three big uh, distributors of coffee beans and then they sell them to the chocolate companies you know and there's there's five big chocolate companies i do you, do you think you can you can name any of the the big chocolate companies of the world
0: well i know there's nestle right is that one, okay. That one. <laughs> okay i don't know the others i'm failing the test <laughs> like, uh, so hershey
1: uh hershey Hershey's Hershey's okay going. hershey oh, you're on a roll
0: um, about Giardelli. I don't know if that's like a brand or if that's an actual like maybe Belgium.
1: Belgium's a really important uh chocolate site but it's not one of the big uh companies it's not for for uh yeah so uh Mandalay is another one they're uh the okay. people that, like Cadbury to- Toblerone
0: oh okay uh, Toblerone I know yeah. those those are tasty
1: okay uh Pharaoh Rocher
0: uh-huh
1: Eroshea is another one. And uh, the last one's Meiji in uh, Japan. So those people produce the bulk of the world's chocolate that we eat. Um, uh, and so you can just kind of see how like it's gone from like a, like a diverse base of different farmers rapidly into consolidated stru- power structures that, 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 mm. that have a, a, a profit structure around selling, selling these beans uh and uh and so but people hold them accountable uh, uh, so this shirt that i'm wearing i don't know if you can see the, the logo on it anywhere where it says that it's a uh, cocoa life and so mm-hmm. and so um i'll stand up yeah yeah go. okay
0: cocoa life, cocoa life nice with your so mm-hmm.
1: cocoa life is a initiative by uh Mondele for their farmers in ghana to try and you know uh uh, uh help farmers to uh, uh, increase their means of uh, economic gains, uh, increase sustainability, provide, you know, access to education. So, uh, you know, I think it's good to keep pressure on these big companies, because they do invest, if if they see that consumers care about this, they do invest in uh, in supporting these communities and making sure that that they're uh, that they're taking care of and and so i there's uh it's it's nice it's nice to see that there's always more work that needs to be done on this but but there there are uh, there are initiatives i mean i also this is another uh, brand of coffee this one's from uh bali and so this, this is a um, produced by uh, a uh, initiative that helps farmers they produce biogas uh, for manure and they use it as a fertilizer on coffee and cocoa and then they sell these coffee beans for the farmers to try and help them uh, uh, you know sell these these uh, these high-end coffees as well so there's lots of little initiatives like this that really try to help farmers and I work with them as well to uh, try and uh, improve their sustainability techniques and and, and really uh, you know in- increase the quality of life uh for the people that are actually yeah, at the actually
0: the- doing, yeah, or- that have to make the advance, the, the investments in land and labor. It's, 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 it's kind of wild to me that so much is made off of the trade of these products, but actually the creation of the core ingredients through farming is, is so undervalued. I mean, and things are only going to get harder. I mean, right mm-hmm. now we are suffering massive heat waves throughout, you know, Europe and the U.S. and beyond, um. You know it's it's like 104 degrees um fahrenheit right now in 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 the village in italy where my husband's from and i'm like this is really hot that's really hot and so what's you know there are there are going to be consequences from climate change to our ability to grow these crops plus we have a pretty low level of biodiversity when it comes to coffee and and cocoa Mm -hmm. um What are your thoughts there? I mean, are these industries at risk because of of the factors of climate change and low biodiversity? Absolutely. Um, What do you you foresee?
1: For multiple reasons, they absolutely are uh, at risk. Like I said, most of the coffee and cocoa is produced in the tropical equatorial belt, which is especially sensitive to climate change and Mm -hmm. high temperatures. So, um, you know, this the, uh, the the global south where most of this is produced is identified at a higher risk for climate change. And again, when you're talking about smallholder farmers, a lot of these products are produced on like a couple hectares by a farmer, and they they get sold. Mm-hmm. collected. You know, all of these issues. Uh, um, there's a lot of social economic issues that really limit these farmers as well. And, and climate change exacerbates that. Even things like inflation and like how like the cost of food, right? Like it's becoming more and more expensive and, and they really feel the pinch. I, I've got family in Colombia, and they tell me that people are really feeling the pinch from uh, from the price of food and, uh, you know, but the, the price of commodities, there aren't, aren't like the, the, the price that they're buying or selling their beans for isn't increasing, but the food is getting more and more uh, expensive. So finding ways where they can increase their self resiliency and, uh, you know, uh, take care of themselves more, uh, be adaptive in the face of climate change. I'm writing projects on that right now. That's great. Try and um, you know uh, work with the the people because yes, I want I I want to make sure that we all have access to coffee in the future.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm I'm just thinking beyond feeding their families. There are also challenges in rising prices for the chemicals that it takes, even if it's organic agriculture. There's still an expense to protecting these plants from disease. I I -hmm. was working um, this past winter in Egypt and visiting a number of smallholder date farmers in, in the Western desert of Egypt in a small oasis. And they're having horrific problems right now with the kind of like larval insect that just gets into the date and just destroys the date. And I'm, I'm, asking them, well, what can you do? Like, well, we have this bottle of basically it's a kind of pesticide, but they can't afford enough to actually protect all the trees. So they limit how much they put in and then it doesn't always work. And so they're seeing big parts of their date orchards just dying off. And this is a, this is something we've seen over and over again. We've seen this with citrus as well, right? With citrus greening, um, where we have a lack of diversity and, Man- from climate change and pests, it's 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 just a recipe for disaster,
1: right? Absolutely, absolutely. I I do know that there's one site in Colombia, very close to where my family lives, where they have a a, a biodiversity a orchard, so to speak, or a plantation. Mm-hmm. Of maybe they have like sixty-five different varieties of coffee on this plant.
0: Amazing, that's they rare. Mostly, yeah, Yeah,
1: it is very rare. It is a very special thing. Now, most of the time, it's like a, a few cultivars that do the bulk of the production. But they have they keep these reservoirs because they understand that this is a natural mm-hmm. heritage and a treasure that they're that they can draw upon potentially to look for pest resistant or disease resistant uh, crops. Because you're right, all of the fruit uh, crops uh, or fruit trees out there are all horribly sensitive to to insects and pests the other thing that we're doing like i said is we uh, digest uh, manures or food waste into natural gas for cooking in the home but then it also produces a series of fertilizers organic fertilizers as well so they're able to turn the re- residues uh, into something that so then they don't have to go out and buy fertilizers just like they have to do nice. for, for, the chem- for the pesticides as well so yeah. there are things that can be done uh, and it's j- and a lot of it's about education people want to do these things they just need help need training uh you know it's it's not hard but you know to get out there and really make an impact you gotta you gotta work smart and work with uh initiatives and and uh you know get local involvement into play to like make sure that these things actually really take off the ground
0: that's amazing well i've learned so much from this episode from from speaking with you and i know our listeners uh will as well thanks so much for coming on the show uh, it's always a pleasure yeah and um Is there anywhere I can send folks, like on your social media or to um, a website, so they can learn more about your work?
1: Yeah, please do. I mean, you can look me up on Twitter at Trash Prof. Uh, That's uh, if you want to just get in touch with me. Uh, You can also just uh, Google my name, Eric Peterson at INRS, and you'll see my professor webpage, which has uh, links to my articles and research. And uh, student opportunities if anyone's interested in doing uh, grad studies in, in these types of work. I'm always looking for bright young minds to uh, be the next uh, generation of uh, leaders in science.
0: Amazing. Like, if I was applying to grad school right now, I would definitely <laughs> want to join your lab because you're doing really cool work across the globe. Well, thanks uh, so yeah, much, Eric.
1: It's not hard when like, you uh, convince someone to go to Columbia or Bali, it's fun. <laughs> it's
0: great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for The Food Curious, recorded for you today on Restream. I want to give a big shout out of thanks to our show's producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth of Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. I also want to let you know, if you'd like to support the show, you can go over to our swag site. We have lots of fun things, t-shirts, bags, um, coffee cups um, at mysterycontrol.com. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in each and every week. It's great to have you um, here with us. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.